Okay, if you would please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. I'll be reading Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them. But only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Blessed be the reading of God's holy, inspired retelling of what happened in Nazareth that day. And Holy Father, may you grace me with your Spirit to be faithful to the Lord Jesus' preaching that morning or that afternoon. And may we here be absolutely different from the congregants that day. 
by your grace and by your mercy. Amen. All Christian denominations in every local church, and yes, including in the evangelical world, should constantly ask the question, if Jesus were to come here and to preach, by the end of the service, would we be thrilled? Or would we become so angry we form a mob in order to kill him? There is a sense. Don't miss this. In both of these, they are blessings. But with that blessing, there is a sense in which it is dangerous to be a churchgoer for a long time. Teenagers, you are blessed because you're here. You are blessed because your parents love the Lord Jesus and are raising you in church. But there is a danger of being brought up in the church. What we just read is not the last time in history where religious people became so familiar with Bible, so familiar with the truth statements, that they don't even know it, that their heart is so hardened that when the truth Himself shows up, they want to kill Him. And so, as we look at this passage this morning, let's hear the warning so that we will really hear the good news that the Messiah came to preach and the work He did to purchase it. <coughs> Notice how Luke, in a sense, just slips in verses 14 to 15. In other words, what we, really quickly, what, what he put there, he could have written a whole lot of stuff. Jesus got baptized. And then he's off to the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. And the next thing we read in the Gospel of Luke is starting with verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Okay, and that's it. Because what Luke wants to do is really start off Jesus' public ministry with what happens in Nazareth. Because remember, Luke is a theologian. He's got a theological purpose in the way he's constructing his narrative to Theophilus, the non-Jewish, the Gentile. Gentiles are wondering, how is this? Okay, we hear the gospel, and some were believing. Help us understand. Didn't he? he went to the Jews. He's Jewish. and The Hebrew Scripture, and it comes from the Jews, and the vast majority of them just shunned him and killed him. Okay. 
He's got this motif going on in this Gospel to show not only historically in Jesus' ministry what happened, but it's the fulfillment of what the Hebrew Scripture itself prophesied that happened. That He would go to His own people, the Jews first, and some would believe, and they would be saved, and the majority would reject Him. And then the Gospel from the Old Testament teaching about it, and this is what's happening now in the first century, goes to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. So he tells this story of this particular Saturday when Jesus comes to his home church, his home synagogue where he was raised, so that from the get-go he says, here is the good news, the Gospel. And this is what it demands. And here's why many people reject it. And so, Jesus here goes finally to his hometown where he grew up, to the church meeting, to the synagogue meeting. But let's just pause for a moment and think about this for a minute. What's going with synagogue? Okay, what's happening? Okay. The synagogue, as far as we know, probably originated in the Babylonian or during the Babylonian captivity, which is in the 500s. BC. So over 400 years to 500 years before Christ came because the temple was destroyed. And where we Jews that are left going to start meeting and start taking the scripture seriously again? Well, in the local towns, they, they, they structured what is understood as the synagogue, the place of weekly Sabbath worship and instruction. And they had, we got, we got a pattern of service here, and every church has some type of liturgy, I mean, just some kind of a structure when they start and what they do. And so did synagogues. And it basically went like this. When the service would start, they would be singing particular psalms together. Then, in the synagogue, they would recite the Shema. It's the Hebrew word for to hear which comes from Deuteronomy 6, which was a central biblical verse or verses for the Jews and is today. Shema Israel Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord our God is one. Central. They would recite that every Sabbath service. Then they would recite prayers together that were written and that they understood and knew by heart. Then would come Two scripture readings. One from the Torah, the law, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is the law. One would come from there, and then the second reading would come from the prophets. Now, the way that worked, they had a little holy ark in the synagogue, a nice, pretty, beautiful box where one of the board, member officials or officers of the synagogue then who was attending the service that day would go to the ark and open it up and he'd take out the Torah, the law. He'd come to the table and he'd place that scroll. You've got to remember, they're not book form. They're scrolls. Place the scroll there. Then whoever was designated as the reader from the synagogue that day would come up and read the passages from the Torah. And then the attendant would take it back and put it back in the ark and he would grab the prophet's scroll and he placed it on the table and then the person who was designated to read from the prophets would come up stand at the table and read and then it'd be handed back 
to the attendant to place it. Then that reader, who was designated also now to give a sermon, to teach. And to teach in the synagogue is very different than what we do. I'm standing up here behind this little podium, this, or you can have a table. That's not what they would do. They would sit and then teach. So when you read this, don't get confused about what we Christians pretty much do. I'm done, and I come back and sit in my chair, or Bob, who read Scripture in the morning, he's sitting there looking this way and just starts talking. No, sitting in front, and now, they understand, sitting means, okay, now he's ready to preach. Give a sermon, just like when I get up here, behind the pulpit, ready to give a sermon. After that comes the benediction, very familiar in the church as well as to the Jews, of Aaron, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make His face shine upon you, and the service is over. Okay? So, back to the text. Jesus' fellow townsfolk in Nazareth, their hearing word is the point. They know. He's going to all these other cities in the Galilean region for weeks, a couple months, we don't know. But word is out, it's Jesus. His name is Jesus. He's this guy preaching and he's doing wonders. He's healing blind people. And people are praising him for his sermons. He's gathering this following. When's he coming here? Is he ever going to come back home? Finally, at the end of one week, word gets out. Jesus is home. That Saturday morning, that building was packed. Before the service, Jesus is most likely asked by one of the officers, would you read the prophets today and give the sermon? And so we pick up in verse 16. Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, which is Isaiah 62, verses 1 to 2, and read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So you got the picture. Stands up like you're supposed to do, goes to the table, he reads. And he actually got a little quote in there from chapter 58 of Isaiah 2 that's inserted from verse 6. But significantly, Jesus stopped where he stopped. He didn't read the last clause of Isaiah 61 verse 2, which says, In the day of vengeance of our God. That omission was clear to them. You can hear some. Why'd you leave that out? We like that verse when God talks about destroying our enemies. Yeah. Just a little little parenthesis here. Prophets like Isaiah, where God would 
give them revelation of the future? Many times, they didn't see how all these pieces fit together, even in their own words at times. It's like, have you ever been in the Sierras and you see mountain ranges and you see, a, okay, there's a slope and then behind it, right there, another slope. You can't tell if they're right together or if they're 80 miles apart. The second one, it's the same height, but it might be five times or six times bigger. It just, from your perspective, the prophet's perspective, it was right. Isaiah saw, and he truly saw, the Messiah will come, and he will bring the favorable year of the Lord, the season, the jubilee period of time of the Lord, and he will bring vengeance. But if you get in a helicopter like Jesus does, and he knows why he's here, now you see how far apart those two things are. Jesus is first coming. He's proclaiming good news. And there's grace. And flow to it. Run to it. And then over here at this other mountain, it's true, He is coming back a second time for vengeance. Okay, so that, that's what's going on. But Jesus significantly just says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, You can hear a pin drop. Then, verses 20 and 21 say, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down at the preacher's place. He sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began, that's how he began his sermon. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's stunning. Why? Look at the scripture. 700 years before this incident, Isaiah prophesied. He looked forward to the time when not just an anointed one, but the anointed one. That's where we get the word Messiah. He looked forward to the time when the promised one, the son of David, the Messiah would come. That Messiah would say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, etc. Okay. 700 years before. There it is. Jesus of Nazareth shows up in Nazareth's synagogue, he reads those very words that the Messiah would say, and he essentially says to his fellow Nazarenes, the Messiah just said those words in your hearing. It is fulfilled. And by leaving off and the day of vengeance of our God, he's implying, yeah, even though it's true, the day of vengeance is coming. With my coming right now, it's not yet. Now is good news. It's grace. It's the season of the Lord's favor. 
So again, notice Luke says, this is how he began. So obviously, it's not all he said. We don't know how long he went on. Ten minutes? Thirty? Or exactly what he said. But I think we can get in the general ballpark. And that is this. He taught the text he read. That's what I think. And significantly, he says, the Messiah is to come. I'm here. And to preach good news to these four different groups. The poor, the blind, the imprisoned, and the oppressed. I think he just unfolded them. So this text that lay there for hundreds of years, the Messiah is coming to preach good news. Uh, First, to the poor. Now, that word it can refer to poverty in, in all of its forms. But I think what he meant here, particularly, and what I think he's unfolding, because he certainly does throughout the rest of the Gospels, we see him doing this, is more of an emphasis on the poverty that people realize they're in spiritually. In other words, like he said to the church later on down the road at Laodicea, from Revelation 3, verse 17, he says to the church, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's the same Greek word that he used in the Beatitudes when Jesus said, Blessed are the poor. And then he, he modifies it there. Yeah, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, I've come for the poor. Now, there's something about it where it is amazing in God's providence how people who are literally financially poor often are more attuned to their spiritual poverty too. Secondly, He's come, He says, to bring liberty to the captives, to those who are prisoners. So what did Jesus do? Go ahead and start opening all the doors of the Roman Empire? He didn't. He's saying, fellow Nazarenes, I have come to bring freedom and release to prisoners just like you. (laughs) That's what they're hearing. The release of those who are in bondage to sin and money, idolatrous, guilt, Satan. He says He's come so that the blind would see. And yes, clearly, He opened many blind, even from birth, eyes, miraculously, so they would see. In this text, and in unfolding it, I really feel confident that He meant particularly metaphorically. Remember later, you Pharisees, you're blind! Because you say you see. 
It is this realization of my spiritual blindness and darkness that cries out for mercy. It's like what Jesus Himself would later say to Paul directly about your ministry. Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Chapter 26 of Acts. Quote, why? In order to open their eyes. Spiritually. See it? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Me. He's come for those who realize they're blind. And finally, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The word there for oppressed, the root of that has to be those who are broken to pieces. You're crushed. For those who are in the real experience that life's circumstances are just oppressive upon them, I've come to preach good news to them. So, I think he said something like that. So there's Jesus sitting in the place of the teacher, unfolding the meaning of the text. And they were, this is where we're going to have to feel this text out, what Luke's doing. They were amazed. They were amazed at how skilled he was at speaking. How eloquent his delivery, his insight, his words just fell from his lips. And there's something about that. It's like, ooh, captivating. You, you see that in verse 22? And all spoke well of Him. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from His mouth. So, so, so far, so good. He's a polished speaker. And who knows, during the sermon, at what, at what point, slow, the content of what He's saying, they started to get. And things started to change. Just stop for a moment. There's something there about us believers being very careful to distinguish the difference between the skill and the polish and the giftedness of a speaker and the content. God has graced the church with unbelievably good, skilled, anointed, polished speakers with Great biblical content. Terrific. But always know they're not one in the same. Because the Apostle Paul might come. And you'll think, I'm kind of bored. His personal presence is unimpressive. That's the way Paul put it. His speech is almost contemptible. And, and the church at Corinth was thrilled to hear these people. They're very creative. And Paul called these guys because it had to do with content. False apostles. I don't. That that was not notes. But then the content, though, started to get to them. Maybe by the time Jesus is wrapping up, somewhere in there, all of a sudden it turns to, wow, he's a great speaker too. Wait a minute. Is he preaching to us? 
Is he saying that we're blind, we're in prison, we're poor, we're impoverished, we're oppressed? Who does he think he is? Saying that he's the fulfillment of this text? We watched him grow up on our streets playing with the other little boys. He used to fix our furniture and build our stuff, didn't he? Isn't this Joe's kid? That's what's going on. Jesus perceives this grumbling. Now, you would think, if you're a good speaker and you're losing your audience like that, you're going to think, okay, what do I got to do to get them back? They're starting to come against me. But what He does next, there is no explanation for it if He were trying to gain a following. He knows they're thinking. They're starting to say, Tell you, you do some tricks for us like you've done in these other towns of Galilee. Maybe do a few miracles. Then we'll listen to you. He knows that's what they're thinking. Besides that, we're not poor and destitute. Who does he think he's talking to? So does Jesus do that? Does he heal? Do some miracles and wow him? No. Instead, he does what he purposed to do before he ever showed up at synagogue that day. He incites a riot. And he does it by just getting biblical. He tells two Old Testament stories that attack their religious, prideful assumptions. And he intends to offend. I've just said it so confidently because of what he says in verse 24. He knows this. Truly, I say to you, a prophet, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He knew this. But we got to feel what's going on here. Now, if you, if you're, we're going through Luke. You, you know, this is the first sermon that Luke gives us of Jesus. In this narrative, Jesus is essentially, I think, this is what's underlining what He's going to do. He's saying, yes, you guys like the way I speak. I'm pretty good at it. You're a little bit wowed with that. But right now, it's only because you still have your misconstrued ideas of who you are and who God is and who you think the Messiah is going to be. So I'm going to get real biblical on you and tell you who the actual Messiah and what He will look like and what His kingdom will mean. And then we'll see what you feel about it. So He opens up in verse 23 straightforwardly. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Quote, Physician, heal yourself. End quote. Jesus, what we have heard you did in the town of Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he continues, starting with verse 25, But in truth, Jesus says, 
I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah, the prophet, was sent to none of those Israelite widows. But only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. You just got biblical and they're getting angry. You remember this story? It's from 1 Kings chapter 17. God shut the heavens. And when it doesn't rain for three and a half years, people start to starve to death in that culture. He's keeping his prophet Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, with miracles constantly in his life and in his ministry that God would do through him. He kept him alive with a raven. And then, okay, let's keep you alive over here. And watch, there's, Jesus is letting them know there were thousands of Jewish widows. And what did God do? Keep going up north. Nope, get outside of Israel to the land of Sidon. There she is. And there's a woman gathering sticks to, to build her last little fire. She's a widow. She's, and Elijah says, Give me something to eat. Just, all I got left is a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil, just enough to, to build a little fire here, make two cakes, one for me, one for my son. We're going to eat them and that's it. We're going to slowly starve and die. And what Elijah said next was on the verge of crazy. As we read, I will read it to you from 1 Kings 17. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent. And the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Okay, and then the amazing thing is this little widow, non-Jewish, Gentile woman obeyed, believed the promise and did it. And she never ran out of flour miraculously or oil until it rained. Now when Jesus tells this story to his hometown folk, you should hear the implication of what he's really been doing this whole time now. He's saying, if this... You've got to understand first century Judaism. You've got to understand the mindset. Let me just fast forward. Peter is born again. Peter is a Christian. And, they're, and he's probably at least a year or two in since Pentecost. And God's got to kick him to go preach to a non-Jewish person the Gospel. What? I, I can't do that. I've never ever eaten in a Gentile house. 
got to understand the distinction in the mindset of we're covenant Jews, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Jesus' implication is, if this woman with Elijah were a widow from Nazareth, then she never would have obeyed and believed the promise of God. She would have demanded, give me a sign first. That's context. But his implication just goes on. Unlike you, ladies of Nazareth, she realized she was poor. She realized how destitute she was. She realized she was starving to death. You want evidence that I am the Messiah? Then open your eyes and see. Open your eyes and realize how poor you are. That's what He's doing. That's why He makes the emphasis. There were thousands of Jewish widows. And God sent Elijah to none of them, but to a stinking Gentile. If they're already ticked off now during this sermon, the next example Jesus gave brought them to rage. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed. But only Naaman, the Syrian. Now, <laughs> Naaman wasn't just a Gentile. He was a general in the army of Israel's enemy, the Syrians. And Jesus says, do you see it? God healed him and left who knows how many Jewish lepers. congregation seemingly in unison said that's it they had it their religious ethnic sense of superiority did not even allow them to let the service conclude normally with a benediction but we read starting with verse 28 when they heard these things All in the synagogue were filled with wrath, rage. And they rose up and they drove Jesus out of the town and brought Him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw Him down the cliff. Remember 
that Old Testament line often repeated in the New Testament concerning the Messiah, concerning the Lord Jesus. The stone, that's Jesus, which the builders rejected. That's the cornerstone upon which God is building the eternal temple. Jesus, as we see here, He comes to His hometown to preach and the first response is they're they're impressed with Him. And then slowly that, being wowed with His speech, turns to becoming livid at the content, at the truth of the Gospel, so much that they want to kill Him. But it wasn't His time to die. And so verse 30 says, But passing through their midst, He went His way. Make of it what we will. There's a huge biblical lesson here. The worldview, the perception of reality and of their perception of God and religious reality of His town's folk was at a core, it was this. Look at me. I'm Jewish. I'm observant. I'm circumcised. I keep the Sabbath. I eat kosher. And we Jews are special. And that's why we ought to be blessed by God. They were offended because these stories clearly teach that God sovereignly chooses whom He chooses. Why the Gentile widow? Why the Gentile general of the Syrian army? Because God had mercy on them. There is something highly offensive to the way Jesus saves people. That is, it's offensive to those who are blind, to those who are deceived, self-righteous, and often very religious. Those who are awakened to how poor though, how captive, how blind, how crushed that they are, how leprous their soul is, they realize they can make no demand upon God's grace. They realize their eyes are open. It doesn't make any sense to say, Bless me because... Dot, dot, dot. There is nothing there. If God chooses to go outside of Israel, 
and to pour out His mercy on a stinking Gentile widow or general leper, while at the same time not showing that mercy to thousands of widows in Israel, to who knows how many lepers in Israel, God is absolutely free to do so. And it is our sin-infected, prideful, arrogant, religious do-goodism hearts that when we hear that stuff in Scripture, say, that doesn't seem fair. As if, if God doesn't heal all lepers in Israel, somehow He was unfair because they deserve to be healed. There's, this, is, this is the place of actual Christian growth. Because what I just said, every one of us must have if we've taken Bible seriously felt. And I'm just, look, think about what in our culture right now. I don't, I'm not trying to, this is, gosh, I just, here, it could be sin itself, self-righteous, but the whole Charlie Sheen thing, that, that, that our culture is just thrilled to watch this guy in his sin crumble. As if, and we believers do this, what an idiot he is. You don't realize you could have been a hundred times worse if God just let you go. Can, you, can we really enjoy another fellow sinner crumbling like that? And say, praise God, I'm, I'm a Christian. Jesus came for the unrighteous. That's what He just said in His sermon. He came for the blind. He came for those who are poverty-stricken of heart and realize it. The Bible is clear in God's dealings that there is none righteous in themselves. No, not one. And the Bible was clear. God owes all those widows in Israel, all the lepers in Israel, and every kid being raised up in a church, and any one of us who is a baptized Christian now, He owes us only condemnation. Now think about it. Now, if God, in His sovereign purposes, will to not leave every one of those sinners to their just condemnation, but instead mercifully decided to save through Jesus many of them, then that's His right to have mercy 
And if, in doing that mercy, he leaves the president of the Nazarene synagogue to his own continued willful hard-heartedness and blindness in sin, God has done nothing unjust to Him. He didn't give Him anything He didn't deserve. And His mercy is He delivered us from what we do deserve if we have found that we have come fleeing to this message of the Lord Jesus. That not only did He come to preach it, but the message He was preaching was that which He would purchase by His perfect human life and His substitutionary sacrificial death where the sin and God's holy, perfect wrath and punishment would be poured out on Jesus so that for all who are in Jesus, justice has already been done on their behalf. And now there's only left God's unending grace of His joyful presence forever in Jesus Christ. And so, what Luke is showing us here now, at the very beginning now of Jesus' public ministry, is that when the Gospel goes out, it does meet with different responses. Hear again, hear it. Hear the tender good news of the Lord Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim this favorable season in God's creation of the Lord towards you in grace. And hear the warning that goes along with it. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed. But Naaman the Syrian. Naaman was saved because he was aware that he was a leper. And he got news there's a prophet in Israel. He could heal you. And so he went there. And he trusted, ultimately, he trusted the weird direction of the prophet Elijah. Dip seven times in the Jordan. There were many spiritual lepers in the synagogue that day Jesus was there. And there are many spiritual lepers 
in the church world today who do not know that they are poor and blind and captive and oppressed and leprous of soul. In their own eyes, they're well-to-do and baptized. And they're good citizens. And they're family-oriented. And they're right-wing Republicans. But if they get confronted with unadulterated truth of the true gospel, deep down, they will be furious too. So where I started, there is a danger of being raised up in the church. Oh, it's not fatal. Because there's a great blessing to hear the word. With a warning. There's a danger. Don't let truth. And week after week. And this is my culture. I'm Jewish. I'm a Christian. Don't let it inoculate you. To the truth himself. I'm going to close. By reading a short little story. From Kent Hughes in his commentary on Luke that helps illustrate, I just hope it just hits us. And whether we've been Christians for 30, 50 years, or we're not a Christian yet, or for three weeks, let the gospel illustration here hit us. A large, prestigious British church had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of each new year, all the members of the mission churches would come to the parent church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches, located in the slums of a major city, were some outstanding cases of conversions. Thieves, burglars, and others. But everybody knelt as brothers and sisters side by side at the communion rail. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England. The very judge who had sent this burglar to jail where he had served for seven years. After his release, this burglar had been converted and became a Christian worker. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The two walked along in silence for a few more moments, and then the judge said, What a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement. A marvelous miracle of grace indeed. And the judge then inquired, But to whom do you refer? The former convict, the pastor answered. The judge said, I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The minister, surprised, replied, You're thinking of yourself? I don't understand. You see, the judge went on, it is not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. 
And when he understood Jesus could be his Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from earliest infancy to live as a gentleman. That my word was my bond. That I was to say my prayers, to go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford University, obtained my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be. Though in fact, I too was a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I am the greater miracle. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may you open hearts even now that need to be opened to embrace you, to cling to you, to love the truth that we are deserving of condemnation, but that you came in order to take our condemnation brutally upon Yourself and rise from the dead so that we can be made right before Your Father forever. And may You continue to open the eyes of us who have fled to see the depth of the riches of the grace and the wisdom and the work upon our souls as this judge to the glory of your holy name. Amen.